welcome to the voice of the child. We often hear about children in the news, whether it's a story telling us about migrant children being kept in cages at the US-Mexico border, or a viral campaign to ensure children living in extreme poverty can have access to school meals vouchers during the holidays. But we very rarely get to hear how children themselves feel about events that have affected them directly. This is particularly true for children who've grown up inside the UK's care system, like my guest, Chris Wilde, who has written a book about his life and the lives of his friends inside Britain's care homes. And the stories are heartbreaking. Chris, it's lovely to have you on the programme. Your book, Damage, describes your childhood in painful detail, how you ended up entering the care system and what happened to you once you were there. What was the process of writing that book like for you? Yeah, it was... To be honest with you, when I first started writing it, I, 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 it, it was written from a subconscious point of view. I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know how I was going to write it. Um, but as I started to put pen to paper, things started to come back to me. Memories from a child, emotional memories, as uh, you know, things which I, I thought I'd forgotten about. So all these things started to come back to me, surface, um, and then I started to put the pieces together. And that's how the book developed, to be honest with you. I didn't know what it was going to be at first. I didn't know why I was writing the book. I didn't know. It was a time in my life where there was a void. Um, I had some complications at home. I didn't want to go to see a therapist. I've done all that as a young person and it didn't work for me. So I, I started to write. And as soon as I started to write and the book started to develop, things just start to evolve and everything started to make sense. Things had blocked out for many years. Um, I kind of ignored that part of my life. I'd kind of shut it off completely. I just didn't want to go there anymore. Uh, and it was like a psychological effect. It, it, to me, it felt like a dream. It felt like it wasn't really, didn't exist. And even when I started to write, I, I had this kind of doubt in my mind, but it was what I was writing was just a dream. It, it wasn't real, but then as we start to investigate and go back over it, it occurred to me but it was real. And that's, yeah, that's how the book started. There are a lot of very traumatic things that happened to you and to people that you know in the care system uh, growing up. Do you feel that that blocking out was uh, a defence mechanism for you in order to try to cope with what had happened? Yeah, I mean, even now, you know, reading and and meeting you know children's psychologists and and having you know a group of people around me who 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 use that you know and, and study that professionally for a living um yeah it's a defense mechanism as such i mean you know the brain and trauma works in so many strange and mysterious ways i think for me it was it was a defense mechanism but also it was it was something I also consciously blocked out. Um, some people subconsciously block it out. And just to elaborate on that, it's it's like, you know, I, I think I chose not to be that person. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. I didn't want that part of my life to have happened. It was, you know, it, like I said, it was, it, it, was, it was just some kind of, for me, it was just like a dream, a dream of consciousness. I just didn't want to know about it. Um, and you know, for the for the last twenty years of my life, it was it was something. Again, I just didn't want to have any connection to it whatsoever. The past was the past for me, and that's how I used to approach it. But then things happen in life. You grow up, I guess, and you start to come to terms with things, and that's when you start to to unlock and, and take away that wall and realize, oh yeah, 
you have a problem here. You you are, you have been blocking this out for a reason, and that makes sense. And then all the answers start to surface, don't they? And that's for me the psychological process of how that develops. So your father passed away when you were just eleven, and you found yourself in care just one year later. Yeah. How did you actually enter the care system? What was that process for you? So that happened kind of really quickly when when my dad died. Um, it was it was so sudden, um, and I didn't really have any grieving process. Um, I kind of rebelled. It was it was so quick, but my mom moved on quick as well. She met somebody. She was only very young herself, but I gravitated towards the other kids like me, who were kind of fragmented young people. At the time, there weren't a lot of those young people, although there were. We just obviously we didn't know about them, um, and I fragmented to you know I I, be, I became fragmented myself and I gravitated towards these people and I just started to trying to get attention I guess that's what you would call it breaking windows shoplifting just doing anything to get attention I just wanted attention I wanted to hurt my mom if I'm honest with you I, I, I don't think I mentioned that part in the book but that that was the process I wanted to hurt my mom I wanted to say look I'm so hurt here and you don't see this but I, I want to embarrass you I want to hurt you um and it escalated so much out of control, but obviously social services couldn't ignore it anymore. I was in, I was in court three times a week. It was getting to that stage where there was conversations in the courtroom with solicitors saying, you know, I think the next stage for you was going to be a secure unit because that's that's where it was heading. Um, so a children's home was the first point of call. It was the first option, uh, you know, to see if that would work, to see if that gave myself, my mom my family, my peers, some respite. Um, and that's how it happened. It happened really quick within that space, just, you know, having like 20, 30, I would like to say trivial. People won't say trivial. It's it's kind of a, it mocks, you know, any criminal activity. But for me, it was just trivial, trivial things, breaking windows, shoplifting. But that's how it escalated. And that's how I, I became known to local, uh, local authorities. Uh, yeah, and I think what I remember being in court and... My mom just saying, I can't take him anymore. He can't come back to the house. And then the the local magistrate at the time just said, Well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna send him to a care home and see if that gives you any respite. Uh, and that's just how it, it happened. It was so quick. Again, it's looking back, it was it's like a dream. You know, you just don't think that part of my life is real, but it, it, it's it's as real as real can be. I guess. So, as you mentioned, you don't say in the book that you were angry with your mother, but what you do do is detail the very difficult relationship that she subsequently found herself in with her new partner, who was your brother's uh, foster brother. You're sorry, your father's foster brother. Um, and, and that, by all accounts, from what you say in the book, was a very domestically abusive relationship, uh, an, a relationship which you were impacted by as well and one of the things that I felt as I was reading the book and reading this particular uh, excerpt from the book was that a lot of the things that galvanized your stay within the care system or you entering the care system was this very volatile relationship which ended up dominating your mother and making her unavailable to you which in turn perhaps might have caused your anger is that something that you perceive yourself from your own experience yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was the, the hatred I had for my mother. It was visceral at that time, um, you know, and what what I witnessed, 
to be honest, what what I could never understand and something I, could, I still can't comprehend as, as an adult, as a father and a husband, and although me and my mum get on very well now, is just how my mum could allow that to happen, how she could she could get involved with such, for me, such an evil man who was completely different to my dad, who was kind and genteel. And to put us through that and let him dominate her in a way that it had you know, a, a long lasting effect on, on, on my childhood. It, it took my childhood away. You know, I had the, the, the hatred I had for my mother was, it, it was, it was fueled by, I guess, love as well. I, I, you know, I loved her so much, but I wanted to hate her because I blamed, I wanted to blame her for my dad dying. I wanted, you know, I, I wanted her to be responsible for it. And that's just how I kind of vented that frustration at the time. You're also very forgiving in the book and you, you mitigate her actions by explaining that she was probably very vulnerable when she made that particular choice, the choice to enter into that relationship and mm. that perhaps that was why she found herself in a domestically abusive relationship. What do you think about that relationship looking back now in terms of how it affected you? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> my biggest fear, my biggest fear is always that I'd end up like him. And it was a part of my life that I was becoming him. I wasn't becoming my father. I wasn't becoming that good person. I was becoming a paranoid, jealous man. So that 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 relationship, what my mom and, and this man had in particular, had a you know a massive effect on me. You know, I he was violent. I had to you know I had to witness things. You know, I'd gone from a, a, a having a father who was kind and generous. We'd play football together. We'd be loving. He'd be very you know he, he was. He was um he was an old school man where he would buy flowers for my mom every Friday and take her you know they'd go on dates every Friday or Saturday and then that transition into somebody who just used would hit her would beat her and now obviously looking back at that point in my life you know I, I it's difficult to explain or articulate because it's so an, it's such a you know an emotional memory for me that I don't you know. It, I don't blame my mom anymore for that. It wasn't her fault. She was gaslighted. She was groomed as well. She was, you know, she was, she was, she was kind of forced into that relationship. I don't think, you know, she wanted it. She was, she was broken at the time. But seeing that and witnessing all those, you know, domestic, uh, violent uh, scenes, what I did as a child, of course, it's had a, you know, an effect on me. It's something which is always at the forefront of my mind. I never want to be that person, and it's. You know, for, for many years of my life, when I first met my wife, I was always scared I was going to become that person. So much of a child's life is emotions-based. And in your book, you explain that you felt a lot of different emotions at various different stages of your childhood and your experience in care. And you've obviously just explained a range of emotions that you felt prior to entering care within your family unit. What emotions do you associate most with your time in care? My, you know... Back then, when I went into a care home, I wasn't sad that I went into a care home. I was happy. I was, it was it was a it was kind of a, a memory for me, an emotion that was you know euphoric because I got away from something so violent, something so so abusive and evil that going into a care home for me was my escapism. I wasn't witnessing my mom being beat up anymore. I wasn't witnessing you know her crying and screaming late at night. I wasn't witnessing. Uh, being intoxicated, uh, so going into that environment at first with me, that was a, it was a happy, it was a, it, at first it was a happy memory. That's how I recall the early stages of that process. It was, 
it was happy. It was, it was exciting. It was like, you know, all the other boys there who I knew from the streets were all there. It was, you know, we had, there was nobody to tell us anything different. Nobody tell us what to do. We could do whatever we wanted to do. Uh, so that was the first initial feelings and memory were some, you know, those of, of elation, escapism. And then as time went on, how did you feel about the care system? What emotions did it incite in you? Yeah, it was a bit of a roller coaster because at first, like, you know, everybody was really kind and generous and, you know, nice. And then you, you, you got that flexibility to do what you want. Um, but that soon changed. And, you know, those those emotions of, uh, you know, those happy memories and those emotions soon kind of turned into fear, you know, fear on different levels, fear of uncertainty, fear of the unpredictable that's how it changed and it changed dramatically. As I said in the book, my first encounter with that was when I was making toast and I didn't butter my toast properly and I, I back chatted to, the, to the, the man who was running the house at the time, the master of the house, and he'd smacked me around the ear and that for me was, oh, this, this is not a happy place. This is not fun anymore. There's something serious here. And I could sense that kind of straight away and that's how, you know, that kind of, it just changed the feelings of, of, of my experience straight away that day. And from that day forth then, the rest of the time in that care home, it was fear, unpredictable fear. You just didn't know what to expect day to day. And it had a smell about it. Like, you know, for me, it always smelled like formaldehyde, like you were walking in a morgue because that's how the atmosphere was. And it it did have an effect on, you know, your, your emotions. Everybody in that place was unhappy. Everybody in that place was sad. Everybody in that place was scared. And when I talk about fear, it wasn't, you know, fear, fear doesn't show itself within people being erratic. Uh, it shows itself in, in silence. And that's a different kind of fear when people don't show it, it's in the eyes. So I knew straight away there was something sinister happening. And that's basically how it ended up. And that's how it carried on. In the book, you obviously give your friends names and people that you come across who are your peers. But there are various characters who are are not given names, but they're given nicknames, like the boss, for example, who's... Um, who was the head of the care home at the time, and the bear, who was his right-hand woman, helping yeah. within the care home. Was there a conscious choice for you to give these individuals names? When we sat down with the publishers and we, we and their legal team, and we were talking about this, because legally I could, I could have mentioned their names. There was no, they'd been convicted of their crimes. So it's not like I would have been liable for saying things which weren't true. It was, I just didn't want their, their names in my book. It was a conscious choice. I didn't want to give him that title. I wanted to call, you know, it Mr. B, the, the, the bear, who, who is Miss Brunning. I, I didn't want them in the book. I didn't want their names in the book for that reason. I just didn't want to give them any kind of, you know, time or space in my life. They, they, did, they weren't worthy of their names being mentioned. That's, that was the, the whole conscious reason behind giving them their, their, their you know, Mr. B and, and, and the bear. Because that's how, when you're a kid as well, you know, you, you, you relate people to certain things in your life, don't you? Mm. And I always thought Mr. B, like Mr. Boss, the boss man, Mr. Big, that's how he came across. So that's, you know, the nickname we all give him, to be honest, when we, when we were young. As a reader, it 
definitely felt as if they were given those names because they were inciting a certain type of emotion in you. You mentioned feeling fear. Um, the idea of a boss is a very dominant concept, as is a bear, which is both you know towering, overbearing, and also quite frightening. And, and when you're reading the book, you do get a sense that these individuals were not just frightening, but they were dangerous as well. Um, yeah. And you mentioned in your book that there were girls as young as eight that were being raped by carers inside the care home. And they were learning to stop feeling in order to survive, which is hugely detrimental to development. Do you think the system as a whole invites children to stop feeling? And should professionals be looking at making changes through lenses like these? Yeah, once you go into the care setting, you know, people become imperturbable. They, 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 their feelings just disappear, they evaporate. And again, a lot of it's a defence mechanism, as you've said before. Um and for that reason, you know, it, it's, I guess it's all to do with the atmosphere as well. Um, they're not happy places. The thing about the children's home, they call them homes, and they, they're not homes, are they? Homes, you know, everybody refers, well, depending on what kind of home you came from, but my home, my, my, my initial home, was a good place. It was a happy place. Um, so, you know, going into the care setting, it's it subconsciously and automatically it demoralizes you and it takes away any kind of hope and happiness you have in your body. And that's how even today it's still demoralizing. The atmosphere is dull, it's dark, it's depressing. And, you know, it, there is nothing joyous about a care home. There's nothing homely about a care home. And that's one of the problems we have today, yeah. As well as describing your own experience of care, you also describe the experiences of several people in the care home as well, several young girls and boys. There are particular stories which are really concerning. One of them is Susanna's story. Tell us a little bit about Susanna and what happened to her. Yeah, I mean, Susanna, she's... When when um, when I was writing about her, you know, her stories, it's, it's been one of them things. She's always been with me in my, in my heart, my soul. From day one, her, you know, she... She just was born into a, an evil world. She was born into a world where there was never, ever going to be any chances or opportunities for her. She was born into a world without love. She was born into a world without any compassion or care. Even meeting her, you know, I gravitate towards her because although she was born into this dark void, she still, she had something about her. It was quite special. She was... She was a very nice girl. She was very caring, loving, warm, but she never had that opportunity to show people, you know, who she really was. Um, her fate was always going to be negative, I guess, because of, of the way she'd, she'd been brought into this world. It's difficult to talk about her because, you know, I still feel very, very passionate about who she, who she was and what happened to her. And I always feel now as an adult, Maybe I could have saved her, I guess. I don't know. It's difficult. The other troubling aspects to, to her story also involve references that you make in your book to uh, drug tests and medical experiments that she underwent after attacking a key worker who had routinely raped her for a considerable period of time. She was then sent into a secure unit and she was accused of being crazy. This particular theme is concerning because we've seen other survivors of the care system talk about these kinds of experiments, for example, within homes like Kendall House. Do you think that this was um, a particularly common phenomenon within care homes during that period? And we're talking, I think, the yeah. 90s at this point. Yeah, I mean, even now, after damage came out, I had 
I was inundated with with messages from young girls like Susanna who who had their own stories, very similar ones I'd never known anything about, especially in Halifax in the Calderdale area where they'd been, you know, they'd been drugged up, they'd woken up in different different parts of the country. Some, you know, a lot of girls in Halifax went to bed in Halifax, woke up in Wales because they'd been drugged up. And then obviously when they spoke against the system, they were automatically deemed as liars and, you know, and it was that dichotomy, us and them. It, it was, it was, it was very common then because they could get away with it, you know, it's different generations, but it's still, you, you know, you, you wouldn't get away with that now, but it must still happen. But back then, the, the system was so, it was so polluted that anything was possible and that was common practice and that's how it was, you know. And that kind of, when I started getting the messages from people, I was, I, I just couldn't believe it. I just thought, I've started something here. I've got a huge responsibility to follow this up because, you know, I have people contacting me who were in their 50s saying I've never ever spoken about my experience which is very similar to Susanna's I'm married with three kids my husband doesn't know about it but I'm telling you now because this has to stop it happened to me back then I know it's still happening it's happened to hundreds of my friends and that you know that's how it was then it was it was evil on a different level and is that what inspired you to campaign in this area what inspired me to campaign is once I didn't, like you said, I didn't know what was going to happen with the book. I didn't know where it was going to go. To be honest, when I started writing it, it was for me. It wasn't for anything else. It was to kind of come to terms with the past, be a better husband, be a better father. I didn't want to sit with a therapist and go through all them questions. So I thought, I'm just going to write. But the writing was therapeutic for me, and the book developed. And as the book developed, the stories developed. And as the stories developed, I did my research. I found, you know, because like I said at the beginning, all this for me was like a dream. But then it became a nightmare because I found out most of it was real. But what inspired me to write it and, you know, to do the work I do today is because I went back into the care sector as a professional. Now, when I went back into the care sector, I was shocked to see, but not much had changed. And that, for me, was when I said, right, this is going to happen. I'm writing this book. I'm putting that book out there. Whatever happens, happens. But I will I will voice my opinions. I will be vocal about this. And it's something which will be a part of my life until the day I exit the world, I guess. So you experienced the care system in the 90s, and we're now 2020. In your book, you explain that life on the streets in the 90s felt much safer than the care homes the government had created to protect children like you. Do you feel that that's still the case for a lot of children in care in 2020 who are looking for a space where they can belong, where that they are protected, where they can feel safe? Well, no, because today they're not protected at all because... I think even in the 90s, I say, you know, I I felt safe on the streets because I feel that that was my survival. That was the things I knew in the care homes weren't safe. Even the care homes today, they're not a safe place because, you know, it's it's got to that stage where it's just so dysfunctional on a different level. But you, you unless you've seen it on all the different levels, you can't really understand it or comprehend how this can happen. You know, young people now, they're just abandoned, they're forgotten, they're, you know, there's so many, it's such an expansive question that, you know, people ask me all the time, how, why is the care system so messed up now? And there's not a definitive answer for that. It's just, but the system is broken completely. Young people in the care sector are not valued. They're not valued like kids who are living at home. 
with parents who are going to school. You know, local authorities have a responsibility to, to be the corporate parent and look after the young people, but they don't have a responsibility which is personal to them. So, you know, putting young people, we talk about careful placing. You can, you know, if, you, if you're a young person, 14, 15 years old, you're going to a care home, you might be placed with a young person who, you know, a sex offender who's dangerous. So these places, the paradox of that, which I talk about in the book, is that, you know, a care home is supposed to keep you safe, yet you're surrounded by danger, and that is the danger. It's a corporate danger. It's a dysfunctional danger which is, is you know, is, is being set up to, to make people fail, I guess. Your book does mention a whole host of dangers from what children experience within the care homes to the language that's used to the accommodation that they're in to the way they're treated. Uh, one of the things that you also do is you talk a, a little bit about another girl who was in the care home with you called Claire. And although you never come out and say it, there is this definite feeling in the book whilst you're reading it that she was being abused by the chief care home worker. Is that something that did happen or is that just something that, that might have been a, a my interpretation of, of the narrative in the book? No, it did happen. I mean, they, Mr B, the care home, um, the guy who run the care home, I mean, he... he he abused most of the young girls in there. If there was ten young girls in there, he abused nine of them. That's, I mean, that's that's how it was. That's you know, and everybody who's come forward now, and everybody who who was in the care home, there's been over three hundred cases, and because of the book as well, they've relaunched the investigation. So it was called Operation Scream back in the day. So they've relaunched that oper- the, the the investigation now because there were people who worked in the home whose names have popped up as well, and people have come forward to say that they were abused too. Do you think that that kind of abuse is still going on today within care homes? Not, it's it's different kind of abuse. I mean, it, it does still happen, don't get me wrong, more so in the private sector, but not um, local authority care homes. The abuse, what happens today is called social abuse. It's negligence. It's, it's you know, it's abuse where, it's emotional abuse where, you know, staff members are not allowed to engage with young people. Staff members don't really care about the young people. It's just a job for them. Most of them are on minimum wage. It's it's not it's not you know it's not a career per se which people want to go that extra mile to do anything you know extra for these young people. So that's a different kind of abuse today. It puts young people in a different emotional state of mind. It causes so many mental health problems. But as you know, making that comparison from when I was back in the care sector in the nineties, you know there were no DBS checks, there were no social media, the whole place the whole sector was rigged with paedophiles you don't get that as much nowadays but again you know danger presents itself in different fashions it's invisible it's online um you know it's it's hard to make that comparison would i say this care system this care system is safer today yes in many ways but it's still not you know doing what it's supposed to do we're still not looking after young people a lot of people are young failing and a lot of people you know uh, Again, it's not a home. I keep reiterating this. It's not a home, is it, for many people? So you're doing an enormous amount of work as a youth ambassador to raise awareness around child welfare and child protection. And you're very active on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, and I've seen you tweet um, a few things about the recent development with Marcus Rashford, who was campaigning yeah. for free school meals and trying to get the government to um, perform a U-turn, which it eventually did on there initially saying, no, we won't be extending the free school meal scheme to children during the summer holidays. What's your take on, on that particular campaign and the issues at the heart of, of that phenomenon? 
I, I think it's a revolution. I think it's absolutely amazing that this this footballer has has taken that stance to do it because, you know, it, so many of us have been fighting for this and and voicing our opinions for years, and everybody's just been ignoring. Uh, and not doing anything about it, but all of a sudden, you know, he's making his stance and they're doing something about it. It's, it's for me. I can't. I get. I get vexed and frustrated thinking about. But we even have to have this debate. We even have to. It takes somebody like you know, the foot Marcus Rushford to, to have to do you know use his profile, his platform to get things in motion. You know what? Why? Why are we even questioning or debating whether or not to feed children? In some holidays, people from disadvantages, it should just be, you know, it, the forefront, it should be a priority for our government, but it's a revolution. And I hope that this young man continues to help these people from disadvantages, you know, in every way possible. Uh, for me, I was so I was so elated and so excited when when he, when I watched the news the other day and I saw, I thought, finally, somebody, somebody we can look up to, somebody who's got a voice more powerful than all of ours put together, somebody who can actually make the government U-turn. And when they finally did, it was amazing for me. I just thought, finally, I think this is the start of something big to come. He's not going to stop there. And I, and I hope he doesn't, yeah. We also saw a knock-on effect on social media within the child protection yeah. sector. There was a lot of response, a lot of engagement with that campaign and people saying, what about children in care? What about the current legislative framework which has been reduced and eased within children's care homes so that various protections are no longer afforded to them during the pandemic? We still don't know why that's happened. The government still hasn't given us a definitive answer on that, but I know that it's something that you are working on. So yeah. tell us a little bit about statutory instrument 445 and, and and why you're involved in that particular campaign? Well, I'm involved in it because when once the lockdown started, uh, I was inundated with people calling me saying, oh, I'm trying to get through to my social worker. They're not answering the phones. I haven't been paid. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. Um, so then when Article 39, I saw them start to get actively involved in this and say, you know, but in lockdown, young people in the care sector need that extra care because a, B, and C, and I'll just get into that a little bit, because what I was doing when I was volunteering, uh, going around the care homes, making sure that young people, 16 plus in particular, who were living in, in semi-independent care, who uh, had food and stuff, I just thought, hang on a minute, what's going on here? They, they've just been left abandoned, they can't get through. So I started to making a few phone calls to local authorities. I was getting through to automated answering machines. Um, you know, and then because I'm in the trenches with these young people, I see it day and you know day and night what the inevitable outcome is when when social services ease, uh, you know their their contact with young people when they stop going to see them, which most of them again you know this is the, the, what we have to understand in this country. Like, try and simplify this is county line gangs, paedophiles, they're not. It's not like you're watching Dickens, like there are people, you know, walking around. We, we're not educated. We're talking about a complex organisation here. They watch the news every day. Some of them might even be involved in political parties. I don't know. I'm not, but there is a very complex organisation. And as soon as they see loopholes in our system, they take full advantage of that. And in lockdown alone, this is like... Uh, you're not reading this on the. You're not seeing this in the media every day. But hundreds and hundreds of kids are going missing. Hundreds of kids are committing suicide. Hundreds of kids are starving because they've just been left. They've just been abandoned, and that comes because social workers should be there every couple of days, or you know, even every day, making contact with these young people on on Zoom. 
So what this does, you're taking away that support system without even consulting professionals or people who, like myself, who, are, who work in this environment and making this decision based on what, and that's what's annoying and, and which is getting everybody into a state of, you know, of frustration is that what's your reasons behind this? Go around these care homes, speak to these young people, see, see the state they're in, they're scared, they don't know what their fate is, they don't know what's going to happen. They need you now more than ever. But if they're not there, then other organizations, criminal organizations are stepping up and filling their shoes. And that's that's what's gonna, gonna happen. The inevitability of 2020 is that more people go missing, but more people will commit suicide. More young people will be involved in county lines and more young people will be exploited into sexual criminal organizations too. What other projects are you working on at the moment to try and raise awareness? Well, I'm actively involved with Article 39, as well, on the sidelines as such, but, you know, I, I've set up on my own as well. So I've got a company called Phoenix Care, and, and we're giving advice to the government officials. I work with Anne Longfield quite a lot, liaise with her, um, and just campaigning, you know, where, you know, as an as a, as a yeah, solo person, just going out there, helping charities, and I'm doing all I can. And again, you know, my, my tool is social media, because that's the only place where, you can actually get messages to, you know, uh, people in power, bureaucrats, politicians, um, you know, and that's where we are at the moment. I just want this to lock down as soon as it open. I want, you know, charity groups and, and other organizations to start having a package prepped for the aftermath because we're going to see an increase in mental health with these young people. We're going to see so many young people who will go missing. We've got to find these young people, get them back into a safe place. Support systems need to be set up uh, ASAP. Children have become a focal point within the news at the moment. We're seeing a lot of stories about children, whether it's in the context of care or whether it's the context of trafficking. And we know that a lot of news outlets uh, are producing programmes, TV programmes about these issues. Are you working on anything like that at the moment? Yes, I, you know, I, um, I was actually involved with uh, BBC Newsnight when they did their investigations into care home kids and semi-independent care homes. So I'm, I have been speaking to uh, BBC Newsnight again and we're hoping to do something on this uh, in the next few weeks just to look at young kids uh, in the care sector and see what they've been going through uh, throughout the lockdown and COVID-19 and just look at some of the kind of, you know, the perils of what's and the ramifications of what that, what's in store for them once the lockdown is over and what they expect. I don't see social services, uh, local authorities going back to normal ever again. I don't think we're, we're going to see social workers going around to properties anymore. I think those days are well and truly gone. Well, for the next couple of months, we're sure. So that's going to put a lot of young people in precarious situations. And that's kind of my focus at the moment. That's what I'll be talking about with the BBC News now. If you had a wish list that you would present to the government to direct them to make changes within the system, what would be in your wish list? My main priority, my, my wish list would be to, first of all, regulate semi-independent care homes. So that initially would stop rogue businessmen setting up these houses which most of them are just dilapidated and, and local authorities putting these young people in these houses where there's no support. So even at 16, you know, think about it this way, 16-year-olds have got no family, no friends. They put in these houses, abandoned, left. And these houses, again, they're not regulated by Ofsted, so that doesn't give them any legal protection as 
a 16 year old who's living at home with their mom and dad and going to college get gets all that protection so that was a big thing for me is regulating semi-independent care homes secondly i would like to see more young people 16 plus from these care settings be offered uh university places because a lot of them do have the talent and the ability to you know to, to go far in life they just don't get that opportunity and then thirdly my you know i want to see every care home kid be treated as equals and that's you know it's 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 kind of prevalent at the moment isn't it talk about that about all the campaigns we start with the me too campaign and then they've got the black lives matter and i always think you know one thing we we should also be including in in these campaigns is but children's lives matter too especially kids from care homes they're human beings after all aren't they you know children in care are still children and that for me is where we're lacking here the country lacks empathy and children in care are always left in the shadows but they should be right there at the front in the light. Mm-hmm.